Uh, I remember when we met Kevin uh, about a little over, it was more than 25 years ago, and uh, brought him here as our youth pastor. Um, I, I'm not sure how much I thought of Kevin, but I figured if he could trick somebody like Rebecca into marrying him, he must be a pretty, <laughs> must be a pretty capable guy. He is uh, married so far above himself. Um, And um, God has taken them through deep waters, as you know, over the years in various different ways, and yet they've been faithful, so they find themselves at another trial, uh, but we believe that God will work his best through all of it, and as we'll see even in the word this morning, all of these things come through the hand of our good shepherd. And so we pray for Kevin. It's a great honor to be here. When we were here, our kids were doing the surprise box, uh, and uh, I looked around for the baptistry where they were baptized. It's not here anymore. And uh, praise heaven, the mosaic is gone. But anyway. <laughs> for those of us who are old timers, and I am an old timer, and many of you, I can tell, are not. It was a joy to see so many kids here. Um, all of the energy that that brings. Pray, by the way, that reminds me to ask you to continue to pray for us in Santa Barbara. Uh, we're in the middle of what's called a church revitalization uh, for a church that uh, Kevin grew up in. And the church was quite troubled when we came there. And we've seen God do good things, but we still have a long way to go. And especially we need to find ways to draw younger families in to try to bring uh, the kind of life to our church family that you all experienced here this morning. So when you think of Santa Barbara and you think of uh, Calvary Baptist, or even if you uh, have the misfortune to think of me, p- please pray uh, for God's uh, kindness to us uh, as we try to serve that church. As we think about that, as we look back on uh, those of us who are old timers, there are things that living in Bear Valley specifically, uh, you kind of can relate to. Um, I remember uh, thinking about uh, how upset my wife was. She wasn't exactly a great horticulturist, but uh, when we finally built our house, we planted rose bushes, and then we found out how much deer love rosebuds. And uh, uh, there was a level of uh, frustration. I won't go any further than that. Uh, uh, a lot of people don't know what life is like to wake up and have a bobcat walking through your front yard and uh, to be too worried, uh, overly worried perhaps about fire season and making sure you've abated the weeds. You know, that's part of life. When you live up here, you understand those things. Uh, if you raise kids here, uh, I don't think other people in the world can recognize how eager you are when your kids turn 16, you want their driver's license obtained that day because you're so sick of making trips into town three, three times a day and running errands all the way to school. Um, a lot of us can relate to that, um, those trips into town. I, I, the reason I'm saying all of this is because it made me think about that intersection down there at uh, 202. You know, it used to not have a stop sign. I don't know if you, if uh, some of you younger people knew that or not, but, and it was a sanctifying experience to pull up there to 202 and work on turning left, you know. Uh, you were taking your life in your hand. You got closer to the Lord every time you did that. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because I also remember when I think of that intersection, I remember, I assume this still happens, but you remember that time of year when they bring the sheep through? When the shepherds, you know, bring the sheep, they're, they're migrating from or finding pasture from one part of the state to the other. And that was always a, a great, you know, all of a sudden you see this flock of sheep. There were hundreds, if not thousands of them out there. And you had to be careful on the road because one of them might get loose. And sheep, as you all have heard many times before, are not the most intelligent of creatures. And so as you're driving, you have to be careful. Uh, the reason I bring that up 
is because Jesus loved to use the metaphor and the analogy of shepherding and sheep and flocks. And even though that herd out there by the intersection is probably the limit that most of us have in our knowledge of what sheep herding must be like, in Jesus' time and in the ancient world, it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. Everyone knew about sheep. Everyone knew about shepherding. Everyone knew about a flock. Everyone knew about the danger of wolves. And so Jesus was fond of using this, of leveraging that awareness to talk about who he was and also to talk about who his followers were and all that his followers have. And I want us this morning to open our Bibles to the 10th chapter of John, John chapter 10, because I want us to talk about that sense of remembering these truths of Jesus as the good shepherd. Because the more we remember these things, the more we know them, the more we recognize them, the more we realize them, we realize that we are right where we want to be. That through the redeeming work of Jesus and through his mysterious work through churches just like this one, if this is where you are, then you are right where God wants you to be. You're right where you need to be. And I guess my question would be, what more, what more could we need? What more could we need? In John chapter 10, if you'll look there, if you know the gospel of John, in chapter 9, it's a long chapter, which is basically one story. It's the story of the one that we call the man born blind. And Jesus gives this man his sight. It's a wonderful story. If you've never read it or haven't read it in years, I encourage you to do so later this afternoon. It has some humor in it. It has some heartbreak. It has a level of betrayal in it. This man who is basically claims and admits that he knows nothing about who Jesus is. Remember what he says? He says, all I know is this. Once I was blind, but now I see. And this was his awareness of the kindness of Jesus and the faith that he was now putting in Jesus, and how that caused him to be estranged and, in fact, cast out of the synagogue. And in these ancient days, the synagogue, it was, in essence, the core of life and the core of existence. And in many ways, it's a tragic story. It even gets to the point where they ask his parents. They say, what can you tell us about this experience? And his parents, basically, they throw him under the bus, we would say today. And they say, he's, he's an adult. Ask him. Don't, don't bother us. John chapter 9 is a powerful story about what happens to people when they're run over by the religious system, about what happens to people when they are shepherded by false shepherds. And Jesus takes this encounter, the encounter with the religious leaders of Israel that would not open their hearts and minds to the mystery of who he was, and then he leverages those truths into an understanding for us of who he is. And that's what we're going to find. Harsh, unloving, uncaring, self-centered, non-pastoral treatment of this man born blind gives Jesus an opportunity to basically say, that's not how I'll care for you. I have something more. And that's what we find in John 10. So with that, let's go to the word. John chapter 10, verse 1. And let me remind you as we read, this is God's word for us today. This is God's word for us. John chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
when he has brought them out all his own, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. I'm talking with you this morning about the sheep and the shepherd. And essentially what Jesus is doing is he's leveraging their understanding of what we call the Old Testament back in Exodus chapter 37, where Yahweh, the God of Israel, had condemned the religious leaders as being false shepherds who were more concerned for their own welfare than the welfare of the sheep. And basically Jesus uses that and he says, these are the false shepherds of Israel. On the other hand, I'm a legit shepherd. They're illegitimate, but I'm legitimate And Jesus was saying, you can trust me. Unlike what they have done to this man who put his faith in Messiah, you can have confidence that I will be for you a faithful shepherd. Jesus' sheep, as opposed to that man who was thrown out, Jesus was saying his sheep are safe and secure. There's a a pen that they can be in, and he is the door to the pen, and, and only those who enter through him. If somebody tries to get in the pen in some other way, they are a false shepherd. They are a thief. They're a robber. That's them. Jesus says, this is me. And so he says in verse 7, look at it. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep, in other words, the true sheep, did not listen to them. So Jesus is saying, I'm the door, but the implication as you read those first eight verses or so is that he's the shepherd. He says, they're following me. So which is it? Is he the door or the shepherd? You've probably heard it before, but as I understand it, in ancient Israel, in the ancient Near East, where shepherding was so pervasive. They would have a sheep pen, and it would have basically walls all around with no gate or no door. Uh, Several times there are accounts of this in history where Christians interested in this story have gone and they've asked shepherds, how is it that this works as a sheep pen because there is no door so you can get the flock into the fold, but then what happens Once they're in there, and inevitably, the shepherds reply, by the way, shepherds that are not quoting John 10, shepherds that are just saying, this is how shepherding works, you know what they say? The shepherd would say, I'm the door. Once the sheep are in, I lay down across the opening, and no one gets in, no one gets out. The shepherd is also the door. The door is the shepherd, the shepherd is the door, and he is our good shepherd. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is our shepherd? What does that look like in our daily lives? Well, here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. Four things that our good shepherd guarantees us as we continue to work through this text. For example, beginning again in verse 9, if you'll pick it up there in John 10, The first thing I want to show you is that our good shepherd guarantees us his abundant provision. The good shepherd provides for us his abundant provision. Look at what Jesus says in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now that phrase, go in and out, it would have echoed in the ears of Jewish people because it was the covenant language from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, 
of a life of fullness and a life of shalom. Yahweh basically told his people Israel, under my care, you can go in and you can go out. That language is the language of provision. It's the language of of the kind of fullness of life that God would promise to his people Israel. And now Jesus claims it as the good shepherd for people who are in his flock. And he says, you'll be able to go in and go out and find pasture. Pasture is what we need, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. And what does he do? He leads me to pasture. He leads me to still water. He restores my soul. This is provision. Look at verse 10. It says, the, chief, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. You see this. The man born blind was expendable. He, he was merely a commodity for the religious leaders. And Jesus is saying, that's what it's like for false shepherds. Instead of caring for sheep, false shepherds come to steal and to kill and destroy. They brutalize the sheep. They victimize the sheep. As opposed to, I'm the good shepherd, I provide for my sheep. And so that's what he says at the end of verse 10. Do you see it? You've heard the words before. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. These are the good purposes of God. All we'd ever want, all we'd ever need. Stop and think about this. The good shepherd says, I've come that you might have abundant life. And yet we wander, don't we? We hear what the shepherd says, and at one time or another in our lives, nearly all of us have believed in that, and we've trusted in him for all that he provides, as we'll see before we're through. And yet still we wander. Even David in the Old Testament, he classically wandered, didn't he? By the way, David, who was not only a king, he was also a shepherd, And yet, as one of God's flock, he wandered. And what happens when we wander? What happens when we go our own way? We experience guilt and isolation. We we experience deprivation and hardship. The consequences of our disobedience come upon us. We can sometimes make ourselves vulnerable to threats and attacks. And we are estranged from the flock and estranged from the shepherd. But Jesus says, when you're in my flock, I give you abundant life. Life that's received and lived in abundance. This is genuine life. And there are phony substitutes all around us for what is real life. And we will never experience real life until we come to the place where we recognize the design of God and who he has made us to be. This is something that's become rich for us in our ministry, particularly Christy through her ministry with ladies And she even wrote a Bible study about it. Because in the Beatitudes, we find there a revelation of who we are in Christ. We treat those Beatitudes like they're a duty list. But they're really a description of what it means to live in the kingdom. You're poor in spirit. You mourn over your sin. You're gentle and meek. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what kingdom people do. And this is abundant life. To find your identity and to find your hope. In Christ. Listen, what a tragedy it would be to treat this like a consumer. We're all consumers, aren't we? Imagine my astonishment when I come back to Tatchby and find there's a Home Depot and a Walmart in (laughs) Tatchby. 
I know you don't want to hear, I know you're tired of hearing the old stories, but I want to tell you, when we got Taco Bell, we thought we had arrived years ago. Because we're consumers, aren't we? We're consumers. And so abundant life means all these choices and all these things will give us this temporal satisfaction and will bring us along to the next high, to the next, to the next desire, to the next purchase, to the next experience of comfort or pleasure. That's not abundant life. Abundant life is the life that the shepherd gives that's lived in the identity that he's designed, an identity of fullness that sometimes will lead us through paths of suffering but doesn't deny the abundance of a relationship with the one who created us. Jesus says he'll provide abundant provision for his own. Not just that, but loving protection. Pick that up in verse 11 and look at it. He says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. So here he shifts the metaphor a bit. I am the door of the flock or the fold. I am also the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's a singular phrase that John uses, and it has to do with a voluntary sacrificial death. We'll circle back to that before we're through. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the flock and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. This is what a shepherd does. You know, the difference between a shepherd and a rancher Really, they tell me the difference between serving sheep in the Western world as opposed to in the ancient Near East world is a shepherd leads his flock, whereas a rancher will drive his cattle and his flock. And what's the difference? The difference is when a shepherd leads, he's out in front. He sees the danger. He's there to protect the flock. This is what Jesus is willing to do for us to give us this kind of protection. He's in front sensing the dangers. He knows what's there. And in fact, he says later in chapter 10, you could look at it later, it's in verses 27 and 28. He says, no one can pluck the sheep out of my hand. No one can pluck my sheep out of my father's hand, he says. This is the kind of protection we have and how glorious it is. Now, I can't answer all of the questions that you have about this because I can't answer the questions that I have about this. But I can tell you based on what God's word says that no trial you've ever experienced has come to you outside of the providential care of the good shepherd. In this broken and sinful world where there is often pain and often heartache and sometimes betrayal and great loss, your good shepherd is still your good shepherd. And he has designed every aspect of reality, every step of your life in such a way that ultimately will bring about your good and his glory. And you can claim that protection. This is the loving protection of our shepherd. By the way, a little off track here, but Let me point out something I think is fascinating. You kind of have three categories in this metaphor, this parable, or this word picture that Jesus uses. You've got the thieves and the wolves. Those are the bad guys, right? And then you've got the hired hand, who basically, you know, he's not abusing the sheep, but when trouble comes, he basically says, I'm out of here. And then you have the good shepherd. The thieves and the wolves, the false prophets of Israel, the 
the false teachers, those that would lead you and me astray, their attitude of life, their attitude of caring for the sheep, their attitude of reality is basically this. What's yours is mine. The hireling, he's not as harsh and as negative, but the hireling says, what's mine is mine. But the good shepherd says, what's mine is yours. He's willing to lay down his life. The good shepherd who provides, he gives provision, he gives protection. He also gives us affection, just real quickly. Look in verses 14 and 15. It says there, I am the good shepherd, he repeats, I know my own and my own know me. You recognize what that is? That's relationship. Just as the father knows me and I know the father to know and to be known. I don't know a lot of you. And a lot of you, I know I'm supposed to know. <laughs> but 20 years have gone by. But you know what? I've ne- I'm never forgotten by my good shepherd. That's the affection he has for me. And the reason I call it affection is because There are people that I've known that I just soon forget. None of you here today, don't don't make assumptions. There are people that I've known that I would just soon forget, but I have wronged my shepherd in so many ways, and yet he still knows me by name. And he invites me to know him. Think about it this way. This has nothing to do with whether we are called to holiness because you know that we are. But I want to tell you that there is a sense in which God is never disappointed in you. Because disappointment implies some level of surprise. But God knew everything about you. He knew all about your past when he saved you. But he also knew all about your future. So he he knows about those terrible secrets in your past, but he also knew about the way you'd treat your spouse this morning before you arrived at church. He knows about whatever failure is in your future. But when you're in his flock, he says, I know my own, and they know me. Now you know that has nothing to do with whether we will experience consequences if we disobey. All of those things are real. We just said that about wandering sheep the pain that we will experience. But don't believe that God somehow wishes he had never saved you. You ever had that feeling? Look at the way I'm living and I think, God's so disappointed in me, probably. Do do I think I surprised God? Do I think that he's watching my life and then he says, well, if I'd known he'd done that, I sure wouldn't have sent my son to die for him. We laugh because it's so foolish. This is the great all-knowing God. This is the depth of his love that we just sang about. The love of God. This is his affection for us. The shepherd gives us provision and protection and affection. There's also the one more thing. You know how I said earlier that as opposed to the false prophets who said what's yours is mine and the hireling who said what's mine is mine, the shepherd says what's mine is yours. He gives his life. He lays down his life. And Jesus repeats that at the end of verse 15. Do you see that? Very simply. He says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, from what I can tell in history, 
for a shepherd to really die for his flock, that would have been a strange thing. And it would have been an accident. It is not something that any shepherd would have set out to do. Jesus is very likely speaking here in hyperbole where he talks about a shepherd who gives his life for the flock. And yet, even though it's hyperbole, it is still so because this is what he does. He's the good shepherd. Watch this. He's the good shepherd, but he's also the lamb that is offered as a sacrifice. He's also the door. He's the high priest but he's also the sacrifice. You get the impression that Jesus is all in all, and he is our substitution. He takes our place. This is not some noble, exemplary martyrdom. D.A. Carson talks about the fact that this is often these days generally thought about in such superficial terms. It's, it's, it's as though the shepherd is with the flock and he looks around at the flock and he says, now watch how much I love you, and he throws himself off of a cliff. How ridiculous that would be. What good does that do for those sheep? Think about it. What Jesus is implying in this, there's so much richness here that he doesn't unpack But now that we know everything of who Jesus was and everything that Jesus has done, now we understand it. We didn't need an example. We needed a savior. We needed a substitute. And this is what the shepherd does for his sheep. How can he legitimately make rebel, rebellious, evil sheep his own flock? He puts himself in our place. And he takes our punishment And he gives us his righteousness. And this is the gospel. You think about it, for a literal shepherd, for literal sheep, if the shepherd dies, it's disaster for the sheep. But what we have here, for people who are in the flock of the good shepherd, his death is the way we are brought to life. And that is glorious news. That's the reason we call it gospel. We call it good news That for rebellious sheep prone to wander, all we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has laid down his life for his sheep as a substitute in substitution. And I would be remiss when I've got this glorious opportunity to visit with you again after 20 years I would be remiss if I didn't remind you, some of you have listened to preaching. Maybe this is your first time to darken these doors, or maybe you've been here before I got here, and you still have never trusted Jesus in a personal and real way. You've never made Jesus sacrifice your own. You've never yielded up your own pride and your own kingdom. You've never cast yourself on the mercy of the court and received by faith the gift that he gives through Jesus Christ, his son, And I call you and remind you again today, it's my honor, it's my privilege to remind you that this is the most important decision of eternity, that you don't want to die in your own guilt. You don't want to face judgment carrying your own responsibility. You want to be covered with the righteousness of Christ that comes because he, as the good shepherd, laid down his life for his sheep. So he gives abundant provision and he gives loving protection and personal affection and costly substitution. That's what the good shepherd does. Now, in the few minutes I've left, 
I ask you this question. How? Like, what, what does this look like in real life? Because we come and you're kind enough to sit here and listen to me talk and, and we leave it sometimes in the abstract. We kind of make it spiritual. Yeah, that's spiritual. Jesus is my good shepherd. and Oh, how great. I have protection. I have provision. I have affection. I have substitution. But, but how do we experience this? How do we experience it? In real life, we experience all of this in his flock. If he's the shepherd, we're the sheep. And you know what his flock looks like? It looks like our local church. I'm sorry that I don't have better news about that. (laughs) But that's what it looks like. This is the burden of all of the New Testament. After Jesus gives these lofty promises, now stay with me for a minute. He gives these lofty promises that he's the good shepherd who provides this provision and protection and affection and substitution. And you ask yourself, you ask yourself well, well, how is that going to make a difference on Wednesday morning? It makes a difference on Wednesday morning because you and I are part of the flock of God. And the way we experience that is in a gathered body of believers just like this one. This is what the New Testament says. Before Jesus left the earth, he grabbed Peter. And you remember what he told Peter? He said, Peter, feed my sheep. What do you think that looked like? Peter in some prayer room somewhere, crying out to some sheep, an invisible sheep or invisible body somewhere, the universal body of Christ? No, he cared for bodies like this one. And then when Paul gathered the elders from Ephesus at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, remember what he tells them? He says, you're to take care for the flock among you, which is the church which has been purchased by the blood of God's son. And Peter also, in the fifth chapter of 1 Peter, he says, shepherd the flock among you. This is the flock. Not the, not the building. The building is a wonderful, beautiful gift, but it's just a, a facility. It literally is a facility. It facilitates the life of the flock. But the matter is the body that's gathered here. This is the way that you experience the blessings of the good shepherd. And you can give me a list of reasons longer than my arm of why this church is inadequate and imperfect. And then I can add to the list because I was here for 13 years. Some of the problems you list are probably my fault. But this is still the way that Jesus wants to shepherd his people is in a body of gathered people just like this, imperfect and offending one another sometimes. Sheep are smelly and sometimes they don't get along and they fight for the, for the uh, pasture and for the water. But this is God's delight to use churches like this one. Sometimes I say, you know, you need to be involved in a local church because John MacArthur is not going to preach your funeral. You understand that? That doesn't really work here because some of the people here are connected to John MacArthur. He might preach their funeral, but generally speaking, I can always say that with safety. And there's some real truth we can unpack about that. When it comes to the time, your darkest days, you want to be part of a church family. 
with all of its inadequacies, with all of the ways that the elders may fail you and the people might not do everything you want to do and the drums might be too loud and it might be too hot in here. Why haven't they air conditioned this place by now? This is the body of Christ as we come together. It is the flock of God. And so it is where, it is where the shepherd gives provision. This is abundant life. You're not going to find it at Walmart. You're not going to find abundant life working at the prison. You won't even find abundant life on the equestrian trails or on the golf course. But you experience abundant life among the people of God. The provision of abundant life. This is protection. You know where you find protection by the good shepherd? You find it in the truth of the word. And you find it in a group of of leaders that are willing to, to chase after church discipline, to lovingly restore someone who wanders and who sins. You want to know where you find affection? You find affection in a place like this where they have to take you in. You belong. I mean, what's a qualification to be a member of the flock of Jesus, to be a rebel who's forgiven by the grace of God? All of us can qualify for that. And therefore, there is genuine affection here, whereas none of us are perfect, all of us belong in the flock. And therefore, we have affection not only for our shepherd, but we find affection for one another. And this is the strength and storehouse of the gospel, the substitutionary gospel. Remember how I said the shepherd provides substitution? He provides salvation? The way that's carried along, what a joy it is to see these children. The way that's carried along to the next generation, do you believe the government will carry that message along? Do you believe our school system will do it? Do you believe entertainment will do it? Do you believe the economy will do it? The only way the gospel's passed from generation to generation is through churches like this one. This is what the shepherd delights to do. He says, listen carefully. When you're in my flock, I will give you abundant provision and I will give you loving protection and I will give you my personal affection and I will make available to you my substitutionary sacrifice. But I do that in the context of the gathered body of Christ, the church. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd, the New Testament says. And the glory of that is in the fact that he kindly rescues us when we wander astray and he binds up our wounds and he brings us back to the flock and we find we haven't lost our place. We haven't lost the place where we belong because we have a good shepherd. And that would be your takeaway today. Because what I want to leave you with is this. We find real safety in our good shepherd. We find real safety only in our good shepherd. Would you pray with me? Father, speak to hearts this morning and begin with mine. And remind me again how deeply and passionately you love the church. 
remind us that when we say that, there may be a theological reality of the body of Christ, but in the New Testament, that's fleshed out in a, a group of believers just like this one gathered here today. We believe that you love this church far more than Greg Barrow did, than Ted Stone did, far more than I did, far more than Jeff did. You love this church far more than Kevin loves this church. We all were under shepherds, but you are the good shepherd. And somehow you are pleased with all of our faults and with all of our failings. Somehow you are pleased to serve as our good shepherd in a flock like this one. So I pray, Father, that you would strengthen the flock, that you would protect the flock, that you would grow the flock, and that you would give the shepherds here, the under-shepherds, the wisdom and the steadfastness and the faithfulness and the energy to care well for your flock in this place. And remind us all that we've been brought into your flock by your grace by the fact that you were willing to lay down your life for your sheep. And Lord, help that truth grip us today in such a way that we live in its glory all week long. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.